0: Tonight's show is brought to you by things that go bump in the backcountry night. Bendetti Optics and you, our listeners. And there are some very, very strange noises out there late into the night. As you may recall, sometimes it's just raccoons trying to drag your hiking bags into the woods and having a fight club. Is up all of you creepy wayward souls and welcome back to the wayward stories podcast wayward stories is the podcast where we tell the tales of our adventures in our wanderings and our wonderings how are you guys doing tonight how are you enjoying your creepy season 2023 Um, as you're listening to this the um, weekend is already over when I believe a lot of folks have already celebrated their creepiness but This episode is coming out just in time for the actual holiday. It is Halloween. It is Samhain. It is whatever you like to call it in your part of the world. And I, for one, am a huge fan of this time of year. I like it when the veil between the two worlds is just a little bit thinner. And I love it when this time of year rolls around. Because even though I produce an outdoor-themed podcast this time of year gives me the opportunity to bring together three of my most favorite things in the world, which is being outdoors and adventure and exploration. Those things, right? That's one. It also allows me to bring in the woo. I love the woo. Some might even say that I go as far sometimes as the woo woo. And I'm okay with that because I think this world is a lot more interesting and beautiful when we allow ourselves to wonder about what might be just beyond the edge of the firelight so tonight I'm excited oh yeah three things I said there were three things what is that third thing well I also get to play anthropology which I very much love I am a folklorist a historian a storyteller of many many years and um, spooky season allows me to indulge some of my proclivities thereof and that is what we're going to do tonight so We're going to get right into it, guys. Tonight, we are going to explore some spooky stories. We're going to explore some creepy creatures that come from our many great national parks. As you all know, I'm a big fan of our national park service. Tonight, we are going to talk about the Ozark Howler from right here in my home state. and We are going to be able to associate it with the Buffalo National River National Parks Administered Site. We are going to talk about the Mogollon monster that we can associate with multiple national monuments out in Arizona as well as the Grand Canyon. And we're going to throw in a handful of others like Spearfinger over in the Great Smoky Mountains of Appalachia. And, you know, there might be, if we have time, just a couple other that we slide in here. But not going to name them here just in case we don't get time to get to them. So anyway, let's get right into it. Let's, let's, uh... Skip the housekeeping for tonight and uh, save that for the end. Let's uh, stay in the creepy season mood here. So let's get started with the Ozark haller. This one is one that floats around here in the Ozark Mountains of northern Arkansas and southwestern Missouri, southern Missouri. I mean, really, it's all of southern Missouri and most of northern Arkansas. And this guy is really, really, really interesting. So I'm just going to tell you the story first and then we will talk about him a little bit afterwards. The Ozark Howler is known in folklore as also the Nightshade Bear, the Hoo Hoo, and the Devil Cat. The Howler is said to be a black shaggy beast with strange abilities, red eyes, and a horrific howl that makes a man's blood run cold. The sound is said to be an eerie hybrid of an elk's bugle, human screaming, and the cackle of a hyena. Some versions of the creature are bear-like while many others are more cat-like. Sometimes the Ozark caller is reported to have horns like a ram or a goat. Stories of the creature originated when hunters, trappers, and farmers settled the new land, now known as the U.S. Interior Highlands. The settlers of the Ozarks would tell each other stories of haunting howls echoing through the valleys and the bluffs. An account of Daniel Boone, the legendary frontiersman, tells of him hunting and killing an Ozark caller while exploring Missouri. Traditional Ozark folklore claims the creature's eyes can put people into a trance. Another legend tells of the blood-curling howl being an omen of death. Other tales warn of seeing the howler before you die. And if you have a passing knowledge of folklore of the British Isles, you've no doubt heard of the black dog or black shuck. Also, can be interchangeable with hellhounds. It is depicted as black with red eyes and a transfixing gaze. Like the Ozark howler, the black dog is a bad omen. In Scottish, Irish, and English folklore, those who see the dog are expected to have an untimely end. Some also thought the dog was merely a companion to travel with the dead to the afterlife, hence the moniker Hellhound. Here's the cool part. Most of the settlers from the Ozarks are of Scottish, Irish, and English descent. Now, I want to talk about that part specifically for just a moment, because this gentleman the is not wrong. The Ozarks were primarily settled by those of Scottish and Irish descent. And there were some English in there, but it's a whole lot of Scots and Irish. Do you know why that is? Now we get to play anthropology, right? The reason why is because Scots and the Irish were treated about like indigenous peoples were. Like, if they weren't English white men, they were basically trash. They were considered like the bottom of the barrel in and, and the way that we humans just love to be and divide ourselves all around the board. Even the Irish themselves would like divide themselves within themselves. There was Catholic Irish or Irish Catholic and then there was the Protestant Irish and you know depending on who had a little bit more control or power the other one was the dung at the bottom of the barrel. So anyway all of these people were basically occupying similar places in the socio-economic strata And so they hung out together, like they intermarried, which is where I came from. The reason I exist here today is because a bunch of disenfranchised, pooped all over Scottish and Irish people moved with the indigenous peoples. And a lot of indigenous peoples, this is where my Cherokee ancestry comes from, started to move to the West before the Removal Act of 1830, because they saw the writing on the wall, and they're like, I don't want any part of all this mess, and if I go now, I can find me a good place and get established, because this is what's coming. They saw the writing on the wall, and these people intermarried, and hence, again, where I came from. So really, this is a super cool story to me, and I just really learned about this this week. I knew about the Ozark Haller within reason, but I did not know Like the link to where it could be attached to having been basically brought over from Scotland and Ireland and and kind of uh, relocated into the interior highlands of the U.S. And it's interesting, too, because if you ever go look at, say, the Scottish Highlands, we don't have an ocean here, but there's a whole lot of similarities between the topography, the landscapes. We have a lot more trees than they do in the Scottish Highlands, but there are places that look nearly identical to what we have here and it makes a lot of sense that they would have enjoyed settling into this region because it's what they knew where they came from and what their ancestors knew and it's really really fascinating and I love that I love that that who knows some of my very relatives may have been a part of helping to propagate this story into the new world into the interior highlands of the Ozarks and to that end I'm going to tell you a short account of the Black Dog of the Mounds, which comes from Emerald isle.ie this is from the Irish, the Scottish, the, the English versions of Black Shuck, the Black Dog, everything we just said, and you will be able to see how it sounds and looks a whole lot like the Ozark Howler. One of the great terrors of ancient and not-so-ancient Ireland was the Coo Cid, or the Hound of the Cid. The monstrous beast was known in all of the lands once ruled by the Gaul, and being called the Kusith in Scotland and the, I can't even begin to pronounce that in Wales, because I don't know if you guys have ever seen true old English. It's like literally not English. Anyway, moving on. They were also known as the Coin Lothair, the Hounds of Rage, which they were the legendary hunting dogs of another name that I can't pronounce, Old Black Twist of the Many Glooms. A powerful brute, the hound was said to have a dark green or black coat and to be the size of a small horse, with burning fiery eyes and paws the size of a man's hand. Some of these beasts were white, with one red ear and one red eye. It would make its home in the rocky crevices and clefts and roam the moors and bogs when it wasn't out and about on ferry business. It was also known to haunt ancient roads, gallows trees, and crossroads, and it loved storms better than any other weather. Ooh, the crossroads, any you guys? That like the woo, maybe even the woo-woo, you know all about the crossroads. Maybe you've heard of Robert Johnson. It's actually in popular culture. Crossroads are a whole thing, y'all. It hunted in deadly science, but when it drew close to its prey, it would let out three howls or barks which would be heard for many miles, even far out to sea. Those who heard the barks or howls would be overcome with great fear, until by the last howl they might perish from terror alone. These hounds were employed by the fairies of the mound in hunting and kidnapping human women, who were then used to nurse fairy babies. Well, that's a little bit licentious, isn't it? If a husband heard the three howls on a dark and stormy night, he might well stand over his wife with whatever weapons he had to hand, for fear of what might burst through the door. The Kusid were said to appear and vanish as they wished and to lead the souls of the pagan departed into the afterlife. And this side of it was said to portend death for someone nearby. So there you go. A portent of doom, if you will. The Black Shuck. The Hellhounds. Extremely, extremely similar to our Ozark Haller. And as it has been reported many times, the Ozark Haller, it roams all throughout our Ozark Mountains, which would include our beautiful Buffalo River. And if any of you, if any of my listeners out there, if any of you have ever truly explored the deep backcountry of the Buffalo River, you know, I'm not talking about the drive-up hikes, the drive drive-in hikes. I'm not talking about floating down the river and getting plastered and then hiking a quarter of a mile, slovenly drunk, to look at Hemden Hollow Falls. I'm talking like really, really back in the Buffalo wilderness, the hollows, the hills, that's the kind of place I could see something like an Ozark caller prowling about. And I have spent the night on the Buffalo River many times, and there are some very, very strange noises out there late into the night. As you may recall, sometimes it's just raccoons trying to drag your hiking bags into the woods and having a fight club. Sometimes it's just wild hogs. And as this says, if you've ever heard, say, a bobcat scream, y'all it is like listening to a woman be murdered. It is one of the most horrifying noises you will ever hear, especially if you get to hear it with your own ears in real life. And it's even more creepy. If it's across a hollow and it echoes through the valley, it is haunting. An elk bugling is also a pretty terrifying noise, especially if you're out there alone, let's say. And I find it interesting that this Ozark caller actually has been reported to make the noises of indigenous animals that do live in the Ozark mountains like bobcats and back in those days there would have been panther or uh, well yeah panthers but cougars mountain lions we no longer have like a viable breeding population of mountain lions here in arkansas but we do have transient mountain lions that make their way through they are associated with the I, th- I believe it's the eastern cougar um that we get out of florida but we absolutely Get a mountain lion that wanders through every once in a while. There are many, many game camera pictures that will attest to this. But they would have been prevalent in our region at this time. Where these stories were starting to come forth. The 1760s through the 1820s and 50s when schoolcraft came up the Buffalo River. Would have been collecting stories such as this and the folklore and the legends. And elk. We used to have eastern elk that were native. To the buffalo river the ones that we have there now are not native they were transplanted here from colorado rocky mountain elk in an attempt to kind of re-establish population which seems to be going fairly well um but they're not the natives because we trapped them and murdered them into oblivion um and we extincted our native elk in this region but all of these creatures that do make noises that were associated with the ozarkaler did live and were extant in this region at the time and could explain where some of those noises come from. But you know me, I much prefer to think that the Ozark howler is real and he's out there and he stalks along the bluffs and the crevices and the Ozark mountain hollers of our beautiful Buffalo River. So, let's move on to our next story for the evening. I'm going to be honest with you guys. This one is truly... A little bit unsettling. Um, I'm about to tell you the story of Spearfinger of Appalachia. Spearfinger is an indigenous story of the Cherokee peoples, and this one is associated with the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And it's really kind of cool because I've been to all of the national boards that I'm telling stories about tonight, and I didn't realize that until I had actually already compiled these stories, and that's pretty cool. But Spearfinger was obviously not confined the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, Spearfinger is associated with all of the ancestral lands that would have been the Cherokee peoples. But Spearfinger, she was a rough old gal. I'm just gonna be honest with you. Like, let's just tell the story here. Spearfinger. The valleys of the Great Smoky Mountains are full of folklore and legends. There are probably none more infamous than the Cherokee legend of Spearfinger. Legend has it that Spearfinger is a shape-shifting witch with stone skin and a long obsidian knife in place of one of the fingers on her right hand. She roamed the mountains between what would become the western part of North Carolina and the eastern side of Tennessee. And they say that even though the Cherokee caught and destroyed her, you can still hear her shrieks and cackles throughout the mountain nights. Spearfinger had a taste for human livers, especially those belonging to Cherokee children. Therefore, parents used the legend of Spearfinger to warn children to stay close to the villages. In the autumn, the Cherokee tribe would burn brush fires to clear the land so that they could find fallen chestnuts for the winter, but Spearfinger would use the fires to locate their village. Spearfinger would come in the guise of an old woman fooling the Cherokee children into trusting her because she appeared to be a village elder, or in some cases a grandmother, a mother or an aunt. She would offer to brush the child's hair until they fell asleep. Then she would stab them with her sharp finger through the back of the neck or the heart and withdraw the liver, which she would devour. She is described as having a mouth red with blood. Utlunta is the Cherokee name, which most sources say translates to she had it sharp. The monster had a song that she'd sing as she moved through the mountains with her raven friend, and it was simply liver, I eat it. So yeah, there's that. And that's terrifying. But there's more. Let's talk a little bit more about Spearfinger. Though she most often appeared as an old lady, she could be anything she wanted. For example, she may appear as another child, a friend, or an animal. She was made of stone, so no weapon forged by a man could stop her. Her only weakness was her heart, which she carried in her hand for protection. Now, Spearfinger had an enemy, as many monsters do, Stone Man. Who had stronger powers, also ate livers, so he wasn't exactly helpful to the Cherokee either. She and Stone Man also had powers to move boulders and rocks. The story of Spearfinger says that they created a great rock bridge through the air to travel from mountain to mountain, angering the higher beings who destroyed it with lightning. The remnants of that bridge remain visible today near the hunting ground of Whiteside in Jackson County, North Carolina, which is far to the south, close to the Georgia border. Known as Thunder Mountain, Whiteside offers some of the highest sheer cliffs in the Appalachian Range. But Spearfinger didn't limit herself to a single place. No, she moved throughout the mountains, along the streams, and through the Nantahala Passes of western North Carolina. She frequently came to Chilhoe Mountain and walked down to the little river in Walland in Blunt County seeking out her prey. Spearfinger was a creature of stealth. She left no scars even as she used her fingers to draw out the livers. It often took days for her victims to perish. Eventually the Cherokee set a trap for Spearfinger digging a deep pit and disguising it as you would a tiger trap and then they set a fire to attract the mountain witch's attention. Soon an elderly woman came along the trail and fell into the pit, revealing herself to be the old witch. The Cherokee warrior's arrows, however, had no effect on the stone-like skin, and she taunted them with her liver-eating song. Eventually a titmouse came and told the hunters to aim for her heart. But not knowing that the heart was in the figure's right hand, they aimed for her chest with little impact. And when that didn't work, the hunters caught the titmouse and cut out its tongue. And the bird was then known to the Cherokees as a liar. But finally a chickadee came and landed on the hand which carried the heart. And the hunters eventually severed that heart from her hand and put an end to the witch, earning the chickadee a reputation among the Cherokee as a truth-teller. Now, if the small bird perches near a loved one's home while they are away, you can expect a safe and happy return for the traveler. Meanwhile, Stone Man saw Spearfinger's fate as a warning to himself. But even so, he soon went back to his liver-eating ways. Stone Man was even more powerful with rock and stone than Spearfinger and moved about the mountains with a staff. However, the Cherokee eventually conquered Stone Man as well, though some stories say if you hear rumbling in the mountains and there are no clouds in the sky, it is simply Stone Man walking throughout Appalachia singing his song. Okay, so uh, there you have Spearfinger. Which is one of the more graphic and terrifying tales that you will come across out there. And I absolutely love it. That is an awesome story. And let me tell you something. When you look at this from, say, an anthropologist's perspective, what you're looking at, there are at least three things in here that are extremely notable to me. One is it gives you some reasons for things such as the titmouse and the chickadee and the place that they hold in Cherokee lore. And tradition, and why they hold them with that regard. From this story, it explains that. It also shows you something about forestry practices of the Cherokee and how they did prescribed burning long before we incredibly wise white folk figured out that prescribed burns could keep the whole world from burning down. Which is exactly why our national forest, and well, not even our national forest, all of our forest, why we're burning to the ground every year now is because we put out all the fires and we did not let them take their natural course as if, you know, it's almost like the natural environment has a way of policing itself. But anyway, the Cherokee practiced forestry management and they did prescribe burns. And it was extremely helpful in many, many ways. It helped them find foods that they needed to eat. And at the same time, it kept the forest floor clear of underbrush, so that when natural fires sprang up, it did not burn down the whole world and sterilize everything in its path. But I love that story. That story is terrifying. And I can tell you, my friend Jason and I, my homie out there in Chattanooga, that I've talked about many times on this show, and I've talked about this story. It's one of the episodes. I think it's called Fish Hammocks in the Great Smoky Mountains. We hammocked our way. Through The Smoky Mountains over a couple of days, just a couple of years ago, fishing our way down Little River, as mentioned in here, Clear River. And it just adds a whole different depth to your experience out there. I think when you understand some of the stories and the folklores and the legends and the the mythologies, and I don't use mythologies in the sense that you are probably hearing it like, oh, it's a myth, it's just a story. I don't use it that way. A mythology, that is not the scholarly definition of mythology. A mythology, we have things right now that are really happening in our world that are a mythos, but they're really happening. The mythology, the mythos is actually just... The cultural understanding and the cultural reaction to things that are prominent in our society. So when I say mythology, I'm not saying indigenous stories like this are not true. I, very much the opposite, like to think that they are. Or at least have some grain of truth within them. So I need you to understand that as well. But when you, no matter what you think about that... When you go, if you know these stories before you go, and I obviously did not, but now, even now, after having gone, and I look back at those experiences, because some of those places, our national parks do a great job of super hyper-protecting some of the most beautiful and precious resources we have in this country. So some of our national parks are places that when you go there, they immediately feel almost spiritual. You can easily start to make those kind of links to what the earliest peoples they were seeing this too, and they were humans just like us. And they were every bit in as much awe as we are when you stand and you overlook the Grand Canyon or, or you're looking up into the Smokies and all of the, the fog rising out of the mountains and it looks like the whole mountainside's on fire. It's not so hard to see why so much spiritual meaning was imparted imbued into some of these sacred spaces and why they just so happen to be places that we now call national parks but as i look back on my adventures in the smokies and many of these other places god nights i've spent how many on my own back in the wilderness of the buffalo you think about that kind of sense of reverence you have deep inside when you're there and that sense of awe and there is there is almost an eerie sense sometimes deep in the night and it helps you make connections to another time, to another people, to another place. And there's a real humanity to that. And I really love that. And it also just makes it a little bit more magical and a little bit more romantic. And I am nothing if not a romantic. Anywho, that is the story of Spearfinger. And we've talked about the Ozark Haller thus far. And we're getting really close to break time. So I say, you know what? We have a short one to squeeze in here before break, and that'll be perfect. Because I actually don't do a great job when I have to read a lot. There's probably going to be at least a few minutes edited out of everything I've just spoken that you will never hear. So let's talk about Canyonlands National Park. This is out in Utah. And this comes from MoabAdventureCenter.com. And I looked elsewhere, and I found some other places that actually reference this. But this was the best, most succinct um Version of this story and this is this is a great story I love this 2,000 feet above a gooseneck bend in the Colorado River looms Dead Horse State Park one of the area's most iconic photo spots the legend of Dead Horse Point originates from around the turn of the 19th century when cowboys would round up the wild mustangs that roamed the mesa it is said a herd was driven down the neck of the peninsula and its sheer cliffs formed a natural corral, and the 30-foot-wide entrance was fenced off with branches and brush. And this is how they would keep their rustled horses in one place. But for reasons unknown, the herd was either left or forgotten, and after a period of time with no food or water, they succumbed to the harsh desert elements, with the Colorado River in view some 2,000 feet below. It is rumored that these horses can still be seen and heard roaming the area today. I really love that story. These are the kinds of stories that I kind of like grew up on. I don't know if you guys ever heard of like the Mysteries of the Unexplained book. It was a Reader's Digest book and they had one. I actually went out and found a copy for myself. It's been 25 years since I've seen one that my mother had. So I went out and found a copy on like thrift books and bought it just for nostalgia's sake. And it's That book, these are the kinds of stories you might find in it. Quick hits, short little excerpts, dotted throughout the thing that are the legends and the folklore that tell really the stories of our history. And this is how history was transmitted throughout the centuries, y'all, was orally. This is probably a true story, honestly, or has a very big grain of truth to it perhaps sands the ghost horses with flesh hanging off their bones running throughout the canyons in the full moonlight that makes it a lot better story and a lot better story to tell around a campfire to a bunch of children right hey gotta tell ghost stories but it tells the story of what life was like at the turn of the 19th century out there in utah out there in the moab where cowboys ruled the day, and they rustled cattle, and they rustled horses, and they stole horses, and they corralled them using natural fences and rock corrals, it tells a story, and probably a true story, and that is preserved to history, because that story was told in in a format that is enjoyable and a little bit scary, if you're the right age or the right belief, and it sticks with you, and that's how stories have been passed down through out history for thousands of years and that's why stories like this are so great but also because who doesn't love skeletal horses with the flesh falling off running through your camp in the middle of the night and terrifying you again i'm gonna lean on the side if it could really happen and i want to go there and find out for myself this would actually be i said while ago i've been to all these places that's not true I have not been out to Canyonlands. That's on my bucket list for later. But anyway, I want to go see a bunch of, like, friggin' Friday the 13th horses. I am in 100%. Anyway, with that, let's take it to a break here. And when we come back on the other side, we have a couple of more stories before we wrap it up for the evening. We'll be right back. What is up, all of you wayward souls? I want to tell you guys about our newest sponsor, Bendetti Optics a brand based right here in the good old US of A, Portland, Oregon, to be exact. And I bought my first pair of Bendetti sunglasses about a year and a half ago and fell in love with them so much so that I got online and ordered a couple more pair. And when I did, there was a small shipping snafu, an order fulfillment snafu, and I got on the phone, gave them a call, and guess what? I get a call back from who? One of the big men themselves right there in Portland, from the top of the chain. Have a great conversation, and we end up starting this great relationship. We have the more than made right, the little snafu that occurred. And I am now a huge proponent of them because I can tell you from personal experience, they are good people. And they're trying to compete with the big boys out there coming in at a price point of about $40, but using the exact same frame material, TR90, and the same polarization process as the big guys. As it turns out, something I think we are already probably new in our hearts, when you buy big name sunglasses, you're buying a big name, not necessarily any more quality than you can get somewhere else, like at Bendaddy Optics. They have 29 different styles. They have multiple polarization options for whatever climate you happen to live in, and they back it up with like this lifetime guarantee that if your dog eats your sunglasses, it doesn't matter how you break them, send it back in with a check to cover shipping and handling and you're golden. You got a new pair on the way. These guys are are truly trying to do it right. And they have this philosophy that a really good pair of sunglasses should not cost you so much that you are afraid to wear them. And I think all of us outdoorsmen can relate to that. So if you guys, like me, are very practical and like to get more bang for your buck and wear some great looking sunglasses, check out BendettiOptics.com, that's B-E-N-D-E-T-T-I Optics.com, or you can go over to Instagram slash BendettiOptics, and that I highly suggest whether you buy a pair or not, just to check out the cutest pupper you will ever see modeling sunglasses. Once again, that's BendettiOptics.com, and make sure and let them know Wayward Stories sent you. you. And welcome back. Thank you guys for hanging around through the break. So let's get on with the rest of our show for the evening. Next, we're going to talk about the Wendigo, of Voyagers National Park. You may have heard of the Wendigo. I wanted to endeavor to bring you stories of things you most likely had never heard of. And the Wendigo is probably something you may have heard of. But the reason I chose to include it because, or is because, Though you may have heard of the Wendigo because it's become kind of a pop culture kind of thing. I doubt you know the true story of the Wendigo and it is an absolutely terrifying real phenomenon that occurs. The Wendigo itself is the mythological creature that this is ascribed to. But there is an actual psychological situation that happens that you should hear about because it is horrifying. Here we go. The Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation. Its desiccated skin pulled tautly over its bones. With its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion was ash gray like death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody. Its body was unclean and sufferings from separations of the flesh. There's your uh, vocabulary word for the night. Boys and girls, separations. Um, go look it up. You may not sleep tonight, but you'll thank me later. We're giving off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition of death and corruption. Oh gosh, even of corruption. This was from Basil Johnston, an Ojibwe teacher and scholar in Ontario, Canada. In Minnesota's Northwoods, the forests of the Great Lake region and the central regions of Canada are said to live a malevolent being called the Wendigo. This creature may appear as a monster with some human characteristics or as a spirit who has possessed a human being and made them monstrous. It is historically associated with cannibalism, murder, insatiable greed, and cultural taboos against such behaviors. Known by several names, Wendigo, Witiko, the Witiko, and Wetiko, each roughly translates to the evil spirit that devours mankind. This creature has long been known among the Algonquin Ojibwe, the Eastern Cree, the Salto, West Main Swampy Cree, Naskapi, and Innu peoples. They have described them as giants, many times larger than human beings. Although descriptions can vary somewhat, common to all these cultures is the view that a Wendigo is a malevolent, cannibalistic, supernaturally strong being associated with winter the north coldness famine and starvation the algonquin legend describes the creature as a giant with a heart of ice sometimes it is thought to be entirely made up of ice its body is skeletal and deformed with missing lips and toes the ojibwe describe it as large tall as a tree with a lipless mouth and jagged teeth its breath was a strange hiss, its footprints full of blood, and it ate any man, woman or child who ventured into its territory, and those were the lucky ones. Sometimes the Wendigo chose to possess a person instead, and then the luckless individual became a wendigo himself hunting down those he had once loved and feasting upon their flesh. According to the legends, a windigo is created whenever a human resorts to cannibalism to survive. In the past, this occurred more often when natives and settlers found themselves stranded in the bitter snows and ice of the Northwoods. Sometimes stranded for days, survivors might have felt compelled to cannibalize the dead to survive. Editor's note, see the Donner Party. um, There are several, several examples of this throughout history, and it's really... Depends on how self-reflective of a human being you like to be. You talk about, you might easily say, no, I would starve to death before I ate a human. And I'd like to say that that's how I feel too, because that is how I feel. But if you ever do really deep dives into the personal journals, there's some really great documentaries out there on some of these instances of human cannibalism. And you listen to them, right? You see a couple of things that will disturb you. And One is a clear loss of their faculties, which means they probably weren't all there the moment they begin to consume, you know, what was their dad a day ago. And or at some point, the human need to survive kicks in alongside that and that's a terrifying thought. That's maybe the scariest thing anyone could ever talk about in any spooky season is what we human beings are capable of and what exists somewhere within almost all of us. So back into the story, After that, uplifting little aside, other versions of the legend cite that a Wendigo might also possess humans who displayed extreme greed, gluttony, and excess. Thus, this myth served as a method of encouraging cooperation and moderation. Native American versions of the creature spoke of a gigantic spirit over 15 feet tall that once had been human, but had been transformed into a creature by magic. Though the descriptions of the creature vary slightly, the Wendigo is generally said to have glowing eyes, long yellow fangs, terrible claws, and overly long tongues. Sometimes they are described as having sallow yellowish skins, and at other times they are covered with matted hair. The creature is said to have several skills and powers, including stealth, is a near-perfect hunter, knows and uses every inch of its territory and can control the weather through dark magic. They are also portrayed as simultaneously gluttonous and emaciated from starvation. Basically, they cannot eat enough. Wendigos are said to be cursed to wander the land, eternally seeking to fulfill their voracious appetite for human flesh, and if there is nothing left to eat, it starves to death. The legend lends its name to the disputed modern medical term, Wendigo psychosis. Some psychiatrists consider it a syndrome that creates an intense craving for human flesh and fear of becoming a cannibal. Ironically, this psychosis occurs in people living around the Great Lakes of Canada and the United States. Wendigo psychosis usually develops in the winter in individuals isolated by heavy snow for long periods. The initial symptoms are poor appetite, nausea, and vomiting. Subsequently, the individual develops a delusion of being transformed into a Wendigo monster. People who have Wendigo psychosis increasingly see others around them as being edible. At the same time, they have an exaggerated fear of becoming cannibals themselves. That would be called paranoia. The most common response when a person showed signs of a Wendigo psychosis was a curing attempt by a traditional native healer. In past cases, if these attempts failed and the possessed person began to threaten those around them or act violently or antisocially, they were executed. There have been reports regarding this psychosis dating back hundreds of years. In a 1661 Jesuit relations document, this would have been, I'm assuming, okay, that'd be French because French-Canadian, right? The Voyageurs. A 1661 Jesuit relations document stated, what caused us greater concern was the intelligence that met us upon entering the lake. The men that we had left behind to summon the nations of the North Sea, and assign a rendezvous, they were to await our coming, but they had met their death the previous winter in a very strange manner. Those poor men, according to the report given us, were seized with an ailment unknown to us, but not very unusual among the people that we were seeking to find. They are afflicted with neither lunacy, hypochondria, nor frenzy, but have a combination of all these species of disease which affects their imaginations and causes them more than a canine hunger. This makes them so ravenous for human flesh that they pounce upon women, children, and even upon men like veritable werewolves, and devour them voraciously without being able to appease or glut their appetite, ever seeking fresh prey, and the more they find, the more they eat. This ailment attacked our deputies, and as death is the sole remedy among these people for checking such acts of murder, they were slain in order to stay the course of their madness. So you can see this is relatively terrifying. It is a real thing that has really happened, with really a lot of cases going back a long, long way. And there is one more that I will tell you here. It's a rather short story, so we're going to go over it real quickly, and then we will move on to our next spooky story from the National Parks. There was another documented case that occurred in 1878 when a Plains Cree trapper from Alberta named Swift Runner suffered one of the worst cases. Swift Runner was a trader with the Hudson's Bay Company who was married and the father of six children. In 1875, he served as a guide for the Northwest Mounted Police. During the winter of 1878 and 79, Swift Runner and his family were starving along with numerous other Cree families. His eldest son was the first to die of starvation, and at some point Swift Runner succumbed to Wendigo psychosis. Though emergency food supplies were available at Hudson's Bay Company post some 25 miles away, he did not attempt to travel there. Instead, he killed the remaining members of his family and consumed them. He eventually confessed and was executed by authorities at Fort Saskatchewan. Hudson's Bay Company traders, the Cree, and missionaries knew the Wendigo legend, though they often explained it as a mental illness or superstition. Regardless, several incidents of people turning Wendigo and eating human flesh are documented in the company's records. So, I think it is safe to say that the Wendigo is a very real creature up there in the Great White North, around the Great Lakes. Now then the question might be, is it really a mythical creature, such as portrayed in modern media and the zeitgeist in popular culture? Or is it just a psychosis that befalls anyone who is in a snow-stricken, snow-bound area and is starving to death? We of course know what scholars will say, but I think that regardless of what the scholars say, regardless of what the anthropologists say, myself included... We should take heed of stories like that. Um, Like I said just a few minutes ago, if for no other reason than to take a deep look inside ourselves and see what we might be possibly capable of, as I said, everyone sitting here right now with your full tummy tums, having just eaten dinner, hopefully, listening to this podcast, enjoying a glass of wine, it's really easy, or a beer, to say... I would never eat another human being. I would never eat my brother. I would never eat my children. And I feel really confident that I would say that and mean it. I don't think I, no, there's no way. I just, there's no way. But, but the things in this life that will mess with your head or reading the diaries of people who did and going, yo, they weren't all there. That wasn't right. They were losing it. They were losing it. They were hallucinating and suddenly, you have to question yourself, like, in my right mind, I would never do that. But what am I capable of doing if I was ever in a bad enough situation to not be in my right mind? Again, the most terrifying creature on this planet, either mystical, mythical, or otherwise, is a human being. And with that, let's move on to our final Story of the night, which should take us the rest of our episode here. We're going to talk about something I feel fairly confident none of you have ever heard of because I had not heard of it until today. Yesterday, actually. Um, and was impressed to take it upon myself to tell it to you guys. To give full, proper credit, I got the idea for this story from my very favorite podcast in the entire world, Astonishing Legends. If you guys don't listen to them, but you like the woo... You should check out Astonishing Legends. They have kept me busy. They have been my friends for the last six years of my life, though they don't know it. And they've kept me company on many a dark, lonely night and down many, many stretches of dark, dark highway. Somewhere out in the desert, somewhere up in the high plains on many road trips. I love Astonishing Legends. And they brought to light the Mogollon Monster to me today, yesterday and today. And I was like, I have to tell this story because this is associated with the Grand Canyon and Grand Canyon National Park. This is associated with multiple national monuments throughout southern Arizona as well. I mean, I'm not even going to name them. There's so many national monuments in Arizona. And by the way, you guys, do not sleep on national monuments, especially out in the American Southwest. About in BLM land, places like that. Yo, you can go to the Grand Canyon. You can't do a damn thing, right? Like, you can put in for a permit and maybe get lucky and get drawn and go whitewater raft the Grand Canyon if you got that kind of money PTO and whatever. And you better be ready to drop your life at a drop of a hat to go because you got to win a lottery to even get in, right? You can hike in the Grand Canyon some, but you want to talk about regulated on all levels. And again, I'm all for that because the Grand Canyon is something that there is no other one on the face of this planet, it needs to be that way. Because we humans are stupid and we suck. Again, we are the most dangerous creature on there. We are a parasite on the face of this planet. I will stand by that. But there are national monuments all over Arizona that are not as heavily regulated. It's just like BLM land out there. It's just like National Forest here. Don't sleep on that stuff. Because if you want to go rough it, if you want to go out there and get rugged, if you want to go out there and do dispersed camping under the stars where there ain't another damn person in sight, there ain't a tour bus in a 1,000 miles, these are the kind of places you want to go. okay? But we're going to start this out. Talking about the Mogollon monster. I know it sounds weird. It's pronounced. Um, or it's spelled M-O-G-O-L-L-O-N. I actually talked about these peoples. Back last November. Because I saw. At the Trace Rios Petroglyph site. Over 21,000 of their. Ancestral markings. Petroglyphs on rocks. Along a ridge in southern New Mexico. Ranging from 200. CE, current era, to about 1600 CE. These are the same people and I pronounced it wrong then, even though I was told down there by people that's how you pronounced it. This is proper because it's named after a governor, the Spanish governor, of that area in, like, God, I don't know, 1712? That was the date. His name was Don Juan Ignacio Flores Mogollon. Anyway, it was a Spanish dude, Mogollon. So, First things first, I'm going to tell you about the Mogollon Rim, which is south of the Grand Canyon. Then we'll kind of jump up to the Grand Canyon because that's where the first sighting that we know of in a newspaper was recorded. The Mogollon Rim is a topographical and geographic feature, geologic feature, cutting across the northern half of the U.S. state of Arizona. extends approximately 200 miles, starting in northern Yavapai County, running eastward, ending at the border near New Mexico. It forms the southern edge of the Colorado Plateau in Arizona. What you need to know about this is this escarpment lies around four to 5,000 feet. The south of the rim lies four to 5,000 feet above sea level. With the escarpment itself rising to 8,000 feet abruptly. Extensive ponderosa pine forests are found both on the slopes of the rim and on the plateau to the north. The Mogollon Rim is a major floristic and faunal boundary with species characteristic of the Rocky Mountains living on top on the plateau. And species native to the Mexican Sierra Madre Occidental on the slopes below in the Madrian Sky Islands. That is, high isolated mountain ranges. Okay, there was some, you know, stupid scholarly like words in there, scholastic words in there. The point is, there's a 4,000 feet elevation gauge in like 5 miles, and apparently it is like the lands of the gods out there. Go look up the Mogollon Rim, M-O-G-O-L-L-O-N. The pictures are breathtaking, and you want to talk about on my immediate future bucket list? Dang, Skippy, y'all. That is one of the most gorgeous things I think I've ever seen. And associated with it is some incredible weathering patterns. Apparently, because think about that 4,000-foot elevation gain almost straight up. You're going to have some crazy stuff go on. With warm, hot, moist air blowing across the desert and shooting straight up into the sky. And you get, like, apparently some really incredible atmospheric conditions that you cannot run across anywhere else. But anyway, this place is extremely, extremely back in the middle of nowhere. Way back in there. And anyway... Out there within this exists what is known as the Mogollon Monster. So let's hear about it. very first case was recorded in 1903, June 3rd to be exact, in the Arizona Republican on page 10. And it would have occurred in 1901, the actual incident, but it wasn't printed and the story wasn't told by the adventure until 1903. In this article, many strange stories have been told of the wild man of the Grand Canyon of the Colorado, and while some persons have credited these weird tales, they have for the most part been regarded as the ingenious inventions of imaginative travelers and have passed into tradition as such. But according to I.W. Stevens of Cedar, Colorado, the wild man is not a myth, and he gives a thrilling account of the encounter he had with the creature. Two years ago, says Mr. Stevens, I had business in the northwestern part of Arizona that took me in the neighborhood of the extreme lower end of the Grand Canyon of the Colorado River, in Mojave County. Having the misfortune of getting my arm broken, I took a trip to the river to mainly kill time and catch a few beaver. I constructed a skiff with the aid of a friend, and when my arm got strong enough, I took a trip up the canyon as far as I could go by boat. Few miles above the entrance, I hauled my boat up onto the sand and got ready to examine the rock walls. So this man is in the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon and he has moved up just beyond the mouth of the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. The first thing that attracted my attention was the imprint of bare feet in the sand. Thinking that the tracks had been made by some Indian, perhaps a Paiute or a Hulapai, I began looking the gorge over with much interest. Going downstream a short distance, I found even more tracks. The third day of my stay, I saw the head of a man on a bench of rocks on the north side of the river. Evidently, he was seated on the edge of a cliff some distance above my camp. So I rode upstream a little bit above the point where I saw the man's head and part of his shoulders above the greasewood brush. Climbing up to the bench, I had some difficulty in finding a place that I could get a look over the ledge and be on a level with my strange neighbor. I finally succeeded in approaching closer to the point. I saw sitting on a large boulder a man with long, white, matted hair, and it reached down to his knees. The creature was unaware of my approach, and I gazed upon him for some moments unobserved. He was about fifty yards away and in full view. He wore no clothes, and upon his talon-like fingers were claws at least two inches long. A coat of gray hair nearly covered his entire body. Here and there a spot of dirty skin would show through. I had found the wild man of the rocks. At that moment a rock loosened by some animals came rolling down. The creature turned his face toward me. Horrors! What a face! It was seared and burned brown by the sun with fiery green eyes. With a wild whoop and a leap he was up and over the rocks and cliffs like a mountain sheep for about seventy-five yards. Then he stopped and he was armed with a strange shaped club large enough to fell an ox. Brandishing this bludgeon, he shrieked and chattered for a moment, and then started towards me, roaring and still flourishing his weapon. Faster and faster he came, and my hair began to stiffen. Now I am a poor runner, so I stood my ground. When the creature was within about fifteen yards of me, I raised my rifle to fire, thinking to cripple him. And as I glanced along the barrel, I heard a growl just above the wild man. He also had heard the growl and braced himself for the shock. I drew a hasty bead on the cougar and pressed the trigger. When the smoke had cleared away, the mother cougar lay dead where the wild man stood. The man himself had disappeared, and the two young cougars were still on the rock, apparently greatly frightened by the report and echoes of my old sharps rifle. Reaching hastily for another cartridge, I found I had neglected to buckle on my belt when leaving camp, so I hastily retreated to the boat where I round everything up as I had left it. I shoved the boat off and drifted towards camp, which near was nearer to the cougars. There lay the old cougar where she had fallen. The wild man was standing over the two cubs, which also were dead, he having beat the life out of them with the club. He stood a moment, gazing on the carcasses, and then he got down on his hands and knees and drank the warm blood as it flowed from the death wounds. The sight sickened me. I stood up in the boat and yelled. The man sprang to his feet, took a long look at me, and then fled up the ledge to another ledge until he reached the fourth ledge where he stopped. Here he flourished his club again and screamed the wildest, most unearthly screech I ever heard, and then turned and sprang up the craggy wall of the canyon. Not fancying my wild neighbor. (laughs) Boy, that's to put it mildly, isn't it? Not fancying having a wild neighbor like that. I mean, gosh, actually, that sounds a lot like my neighbor now. Anyway, not fancying my wild neighbor, I packed my outfit into the boat and drifted down and out of the canyon before I made camp for the night. That was the strangest adventure of my life. All right, so that was from the Arizona Republican. And um, it goes on to say, Traditions record that years ago, hostile Indians captured three men. They had bound them to logs far up the canyon and cast them adrift upon the swollen river. It may be that this wild creature is one of those unfortunate men who by chance freed himself and escaped death, but was made insane by his awful experience. There might be something to that if there really were three men that were like taken captive and one of them somehow got free and basically just went feral. Y'all, it's happened. Stranger things have happened. Have you ever heard about the Japanese soldiers that did not like ever leave their little tiny islands in the Pacific until like the 1970s and 80s? And I want to say even into the 90s, there was one that was finally coaxed out. Like, guys, people go feral sometimes and they will live off the land. And that right there, this guy says, you know, you could see his seared burned skin. It was super dark brown and it was long matted white hair. And very well may be that it could have been a real wild man like that. Or it could be that it is the Bigfoot-like ape creature. The Mugglin or Mogollon monster. Now, there are some more stories that we're going to go over about the Mogollon monster before we wrap this up. This is from azcentral.com. Similar to Bigfoot, the Mogollon monster is generally portrayed as a large, hairy, ape-like creature. Those who say they've crossed paths with the beast regularly regularly describe an eerie silence prior to their encounter, says Wesley Treat, author of the book Weird Arizona. It's often said the monster is around 7 to 10 feet tall and possesses a strong, muscular build. Treat also mentions reports of a strong, very foul stench, which has been described as that of a dead fish, a skunk with bad body odor, and decaying peat moss. Hold on, that says a skunk with bad body odor. Yeah, I read that right. A skunk with bad body odor. Okay, I thought those were essentially one and the same thing. Anyway... Here's an article from the Arizona Daily Star in 2006, and this is how we're probably going to wrap up tonight. We'll tell this little bit of the story, and then we'll call it a night because we're on past our hour now. All right, from the Arizona Daily Star in 2006. A member of the White Mountain Apache Nation in Arizona by the name of Colette Altaha stated in 2006, We are not prone to easily talk to outsiders, but there have been more sightings than ever before. It cannot be ignored any longer. No one has had a negative encounter with it. Speaking of the Mogion monster, said Marjorie Grimes, who lives in White River, this is the primary town on the reservation. When asked about her encounter, she reports that, It was all black and it was tall. The way it walked, it was taking big strides. I put on the brakes and raced back to look between the two trees where it was and it was already gone. Regarding these local reports, Tribal Police Lieutenant Ray Burnett states that, a couple of times they've seen this creature looking through the windows, so they're scared when they call. He stated that the calls we're getting from people, they weren't hallucinating, they weren't drunk, they weren't people that we know that to make hoax calls. They're from real citizens of the Fort Apache Indian Reservation. He points something out here. What that article is basically saying is that members of the Apache Reservation out there in Arizona are starting to open up and talk about that they have been seen more and more and more over the last several decades. This Mogeon monster creature. And what that Tribal Nations police officer is stating and pointing out is these aren't crazy people. They're regular citizens of our community here. And also, let me tell you guys this from me, Justin. As an anthropologist who loves indigenous studies, this is one of the things that I've done my entire life before I even started to do it On a scholarly level on a collegiate level one thing I've never come across ever is any indigenous person who flippantly talks about parts of their spiritual belief system you will never find and I know I hate to make blanket statements both good or for bad right blanket statements are a bad idea but this has just been true in my experience so far you, they treat it so respectfully. You will not find indigenous peoples who speak flippantly or like out the side of their mouth or tell stories or make light of their spiritual traditions. Let's say they don't even believe it. Let's say it's like a frigging Sunday and Easter Catholic or a or a non-practicing Jew. There are a lot of those in the world that just know it by it's kind of their culture. And I speak as one of those. Okay. So like I can say this or was, um, even if they're that kind of a belief adherent, say it's just a part of their heritage, but they don't really believe it. Maybe they've become fully Westernized. You will never find them speaking flippantly or offhandedly or making light of their ancestral beliefs of their oral traditions. It doesn't happen. And they don't like to talk to outsiders because, you know, I don't know, they have like 95 million reasons that I can think of not to talk to people outside of their indigenous tribes. The fact that they did openly talk about this and they have addressed it, that says something to me as an anthropologist. That's something that I can't turn my nose up to. That's a notable thing to pay attention to when you hear someone speak like that. And I think that to me says... The moral of the story is, if you're ever out there in the Grand Canyon and you're really truly doing some backcountry hiking in the Grand Canyon or any of the national monuments down near the Mogollon Rim or any of the other Bureau of Land Management land, anywhere out there that you can go out and have a good time and explore. If you get way back in there on your own, you might be just a little bit mindful of the old Mogollon monster. He's out there. Quite possibly, the Apache thinks so. And I'll tell you what, I'm not going to argue with an Apache ever. I'll never argue with any indigenous person about what they believe and what they know to be there. And I think that is a beautiful part of our American story, to be completely honest. And I think it's a beautiful part of the backcountry and the wilderness. Because to be truthful, for all of us modern-day wannabe adventurers... There are real adventurers that came before us, and there were real people that were here before anyone ever adventured anywhere. And they're the ones with the true stories. They're the ones with the real histories. They're the ones that have the stories that make up the beautiful tapestry, as I like to call it, of really our shared human culture. And it's just a little bit spooky sometimes. Like, this world isn't all butterflies and rainbows, if you ask me. Sometimes there's a little bit of an air of the creepy, and for me personally, I like it better that way. I don't like all butterflies and unicorns. I want some creepy mogion monsters. I want some spear fingers out there in the world. I think the world's a better place with them. It's the end and the end, y'all. You gotta have the good and the bad. Anyway, I think that is a good place to wrap it up for tonight. I hope you guys enjoyed tonight's episode. I certainly enjoyed researching it and I enjoyed bringing it to you. I hope that it gives you a little bit deeper understanding, a little bit something more to make your experiences in the backcountry a little bit more, I don't know, robust, a little bit fuller flavor, something to marinate them in. Because when you go and you start checking these off your bucket list and you start going to some of these places or even when you look back at times you've already gone to think about the people that came before And the stories of the things that inhabit those places and the myths and the folklore and the oral traditions. It will really get you thinking on a deeper level and more about us as humans and about who you are. And maybe even some of the myths and folklore that you believe in today. So don't be so quick to dismiss these stories from the past because... As science is starting to prove, I don't know if you guys have been keeping up with spooky action at a distance or string theory and what physicists are saying is mathematically possible and actually happening in the world. Spooky action at a distance, for real, look that up. That will blow your mind. And it's real and they've recreated it in a laboratory and that will flippin' blow your mind. At that point, anything in the world's possible. Don't be so quick to discount some of these ancient stories as myths because I do not think that... All of them are, and I think that I will be spending time looking for some of the things that we've discussed tonight and some of my future adventures. If you guys like the show, please like and subscribe. Please leave a review wherever you are listening to this. If you would like to get in touch with me, mywaywardstory at gmail.com, or you can go over to the website at waywardstories.com. Let's keep it short and sweet. You guys get out there, enjoy the rest of your spooky season, find something creepy to get into, and remember to be good to each other.